Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Confounding, exhilarating, and contagious. Emotions matter, and so does applying emotional intelligence. Welcome to Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, the podcast where emotions rule. Whatever the topic, how do hearts and minds collide? Find out with your host, a college professor turned globetrotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the show. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for the 80th episode of my podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Speaking of thriving, today's topic is how to thrive in an upside-down world. I'm joined by April Riney. She is the author of Flux, Eight Superpowers for Thriving in Constant Change. The publisher is Barrett Kohler. April is a change navigator, a speaker, an investor, an adventurer whose works and travels have taken her to more than 100 countries and given her a front row seat to a world in flux. She's also one of the 50 leading female futurists in the world, a young global leader at the World Economic Forum, and a Fulbright scholar. Welcome to the show, April. Thank you so much, Dan. I'm glad to be here. And thank you for for joining us. So give us a brief overview of flux, if you don't mind. Right. So a lot of people have been saying, oh, you wrote a book about change. You wrote a book (laughs) about change management. You wrote a book about a world in flux. And I'm like, "Eh." I wrote a book about humans' relationship to change and how fraught and messy and complicated it is. And that we all collectively, individually, organizationally, need to sort of level up our relationships to change, particularly those changes we don't like and can't control and wish hadn't happened in order to be fit for a world in flux and a future that has more, not less uncertainty. Okay. Well, the book has um, some really provocative questions in them, and I know they're meant for your listeners, but at least in a couple of cases, I'm going to turn it around and apply them back to yourself. So speaking of change, you stipulate what happened if you were stripped of all privilege, what would make you, you? So to help out our listeners get a feel for your personality and values and outlook, what would make you, you, if stripped of all privilege? Yeah, what a, that's a great question to sort of dive into. And um, just as a little bit of context to that, I'm taking these sort of three lenses on change. And this relates to my answer. So one is kind of as this futurist looking at where are we heading 
individuals, organizations into this future? What's our position? How do we look at this? Um, the second is a very global lens on change. And the third is a very human, um, emotional, like our feelings about change. And at the end of the day, you know, what makes me, me, and I would say even when everything else changes, um, there are, what we're really getting at is what, what are our values and our principles? And one of them that I, so what makes me, me, it's actually a belief that humans are fundamentally good. Humans are fundamentally trustworthy. Diversity is our strength. Um, and the more different from someone, the more different from you someone is, the more interesting they are to get to know. And the sort of the dignity of each and every human being. And no matter what changes and whether I have whatever kind of privilege, maybe we can have a conversation about the many different kinds of privilege that exist in the world. It's not just financial or demographic, it's emotional privilege. If you grow up in an emotionally stable household, you have a privilege that people who don't do not. And that plays out, I think what's interesting, you know, EQ spotlight. Boy, the stuff that boosts our EQ can go a really long way compared to privilege that shows up as being, say, financially wealthy or having a lot of power and prestige. So um, let me tee it up that way. Well, I, I'm very happy to go into the question of emotional privilege. That was brought home to me and my advantages there because uh, in one instance, I had a relationship with someone whose parents were both alcoholics. And one thing I discovered pretty quickly was no faith that a promise that was over the horizon was actually going to happen because it had been simply so unstable. Mm -hmm. So in talking about humans' relationship to change, uh, it seems to me one of the central things here, emotionally speaking, is kind of a, a dialectic between hope and anxiety. Mm -hmm. I'm going to imagine you fall pretty strongly on the hope side, but of course, human beings can fall all sorts of different places and at different points in their life. So let's talk about emotional privilege. I'm very interested to hear what you can say or add on regarding that and, and take your time because it's a, it's a valuable topic. Oh, yeah. No, thank you for this opening. And I can say I'm, I continue to work on my flux mindset and my ability to uh, see change from a place of hope rather than fear every single day. So I was not raised in a household that saw change as an adventure and something exciting or hopeful necessarily. Um, I grew up in a household where my mom was clinically depressed. Um, we now know borderline bipolar. Um, and my dad was my champion and my rock. Um, he was far from perfect, but I had a sort of I had a, a best friend, if you will, and then I had someone who was actually um, really struggling with her own inner voice, I think, and also that, that didn't show up in a great way as a child. So that sense of, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of growing up believing that I was never going to be much or do much or achieve much or anything, um, but both of my parents were also educators and there was a huge emphasis on um, education and learning and a belief that... I could, that I could contribute to society. And I remember my dad sitting me down pretty much every morning and he would say, you know, the fact that you're a girl and you get to go to school, this just makes you so lucky in the world. And that's a fabulous thing. And we're going to support you in that. But also because you have had this incredible um, privilege, this good fortune of getting an education, you have a duty, a kind of responsibility to give back. And so when it came to my career, for example, it was a, 
you know, never think that your career is about you. Your career is about how can you serve and help others. And so that really fueled me, I think, in ways that I assumed that was what every kid was told when they were growing up. And then as an adult, I realized that's not the case. But I think the where I want to take this is that that's kind of the household. It was a household in which there was a lot of feeling like you were walking on eggshells. You never really knew, you know, when was mom going to explode next? When was I going to be told, you know, what I couldn't, what I was never going to do again? It was, it was just fraught. And I can say very much, my parents did the best they could with what they had. But I think, you know, as the case is with all parents, there is no guidebook to this per se. And so, um, you know, I knew that I wanted to explore the world. I knew that I just valued other humans. And then when I was at college, um, well, basically the, the thing that threw me into flux, kind of my entry or my baptism into this world in which your, your future can flip upside down and you may not know what to do. Um, both of my parents died in a car accident. And that, needless to say, was an enormous you know, upside down world, here you go. But also, and I, I bring this up in the context of fear and anxiety, I mean, it challenged me to my very core. What was I supposed to do? How did I take care of myself? What was my career going to look like? How would I rebuild my family? And I'll be really candid, you know, I was wracked with fear and anxiety for a long time. But then you realize, oh, okay, you know, there's nothing I can do that brings my parents back. I need to figure out how to put one foot in front of the other and move forward. And from there, and, you know, there's a whole lot of other backstory and all of that. But you begin step by step, day by day, asking yourself, um, you know, I could have spent the rest of my life saying, woe is me, this shouldn't have happened. Life's never going to be the same. I'm kind of giving up or checking out. Or I could look at this and say, all right, yes, I wish this hadn't happened. This is rough. Um, This is... Um, this is challenging every single one of my fears and anxieties uh, at a very deep level. But I could also look at it as, what is this trying to teach me? And what are the ways that I might grow only because my parents died? And that led to an opening and a completely different way of seeing the future, way of seeing my role in the world, different prioritizations, different um, ways of showing up, honestly, that Today, I'll say I'm really grateful for. Doesn't mean I don't miss my parents. It means that like, wow, that change that I thought was the worst thing that could happen to me turned out to be actually, it's not a judgment. It's more, it turned in, it it opened me up in ways that I would never want to give up today. Okay. Well, first of all, I want to thank you for sharing. I had a friend in high school whose parents died in similar circumstances and it takes a lot of adjustment, and um, it sounds like you've come through it admirably well. And uh, part of the outcome of this is indeed the book that we're discussing here today. So um, I think now I, I will go ahead and move into some of those eight rules that are alluded to in the subtitle. And uh, I see no reason not to start with the very first one, which is to run slower. Uh, I've heard that uh, someone said the other day that busy is the new stupid, which I rather liked. Um, (laughs) Explain to us what run slower entails. Yeah. So the eight flux superpowers are the kind of how to thrive in flux and how to develop your flux mindset, this ability to, to see all change, whether or not you want it, whether or not you welcomed it, whether or not you expected it. 
um, as an opportunity, not a threat, but to figure out how can you grow and improve from it. And a lot of what we're looking at is how I frame it in the book is we have these scripts. And you have a script, I have a script, everybody has a script. Um, everyone's script is different because our lived experiences are different. But our script kind of de describes and defines the world we expect to live in and the norms and narratives and stories that, that shape our place in it. And your script comes from how you were raised and what culture and what point in time and all this other stuff. But it's a lot of messaging from society. And when you think about what society tells us today, society generally says, when things, well, when the pace of change increases, when things start moving faster, the world is moving ever faster, etc. How do you, how do you respond? What do you do? You run faster, that you just keep up. And I'm all for working hard and striving and wanting to achieve and contribute. But the flux superpower says, wow, a world in flux teaches us that running ever faster is not the path to success. That to thrive in a faster-paced world, the key is to be able to slow your own pace so that it is sustainable over time and so that you don't actually run so fast that you run right past life. And I bring this up because the pace of change has never been as fast as it is today, and yet it is likely to never again be this slow. And if you pause and let that sink in, it's kind of exciting and it's actually kind of terrifying because as a futurist, I'm looking at this going, okay, I'm running pretty fast today. I'm doing the best I can and I don't have enough time to do everything I want to. I'm exhausted. I'm burning out, whatever the case may be. And then you're telling me, society is telling us that however fast you're running today, you're going to be running faster tomorrow and faster the week after that and faster next year and faster, faster, faster for the rest of your life. And I look at this and I go, oh, this is not good at all. This, this is a crash course with disaster, not just anxiety and burnout, but ultimately none of us actually reaching our full potential as humans. So when I say run slower, you'll note, I didn't say stop. I didn't say do that. <laughs> I, lazy. I said, hold on, take control of actually being aware of your pace and making sure that it is a pace that you can sustain over time in order to show up for life. Sure. And I think that's actually one of the advantages to sadness. I mean, every emotion has an upside and a downside potentially. And sadness is also, I like to think of as nature's way of saying something just bad happened. You're in a bit of pain. Slow down, ponder it. Don't rush into the same mistake or problem yet again. So, of course, I'm terribly tempted to ask my next question really slowly, but uh, I will I will move along. So the next rule here that I want to go to, I'm not sure I'm going to ask about the rules so much as something that intrigued me. Uh, so I'm in the chapter that's talking about what's invisible. But at one point, you mentioned someone named Laura Huang, mm -hmm. who has something called the Well-Balanced Meal MBA reading list. So it is an alternative list. It's what's not visible because it's not in the curriculum of most MBA courses. And uh, in that same chapter, you asked whether capitalism is empowering or op oppressive. I'm really intrigued what's in her list. And uh, maybe that helps answer the question whether capitalism can become more empowering and less oppressive. Yeah. So, so the the superpower, see what's invisible, really says that, you know, when change hits and we're looking for answers, you know, what do you do when you don't know what to do? 
society tells us to focus on what's right in front of us, focus on what you can see, focus on, you know, the, the, the front and center. And yet, where we're finding, when change hits, what we actually need to be focusing on, and I say literally and figuratively, focus on what you can't see, focus on what's on the periphery, focus on what's on the edges. What have we been trained to see and to not see? Because again, back to our scripts, every single person on the planet, we're trained, we're, we're taught, we're brought up to see some things and to actively not see or ignore or pretend are not there other things. And this can relate to value. This can relate to one's dignity. This can relate to one's, again, how one looks, how one is treated in society. I mean, it's not the... It's an example that comes up again and again. I mean, just think about something like homelessness. When you see someone who's homeless on the street, do you see them or do you look away, right? That's a trained kind of, wow, what are we not seeing and what are the issues we're not tackling? And so in the case of Laura, um, if you look at classic MBA curriculum, it is 99.5% written by white men. Now, you would say those are a lot of the business leaders of the past. And there's no, I am not, this is no disrespect whatsoever to white men who have done, contributed a lot of things to the world of business and beyond. But where are the voices of women, minorities, people of color who have also been running businesses for time immemorial, and yet their views, their experiences, their perspectives are nowhere to be found in the MBA curriculum. And then you look at, okay, well, what kind of world of business, what kind of capitalism are we building? Are we building it in, in a way in which a range of perspectives and a range of ways of being and a range of needs are taken into account? Or are we building it for only one narrow slice of that? And so her well-balanced reading list brings in, these are all business books and books about leadership and books about finance and books about marketing and you know, the stuff that you would expect to find in an MBA curriculum but written by a much, much broader set of authors and viewpoints and voices. So again, I like to think, see what's invisible. You're not, we don't pay attention often to, you know, if you had, it's interesting, you read these books that are in the curriculum. I wish we could actually do a lineup of the books and their authors. And you would see a lineup of a very, one very narrow kind of demographic. And so when you actually start to see what's invisible, you start to see all of those voices and valuable opinions and insights and innovations actually surface. So that's just no, one example. Yeah. But, yeah. yeah, no, I, I, would I would love the lineup approach. I was just on a conference call the other day. There's about 12 of us, uh, three women, uh, 11 of us, white, one Hispanic. Mm -hmm. And someone said in passing almost, women and other minorities. And when they got done speaking, I said, I have to interrupt here. Did I... Did I hear you correctly? I said, first of all, women are the majority, not the minority. So it's women and other majorities, and white people are about eleven percent of the planet. Mm -hmm. So uh, yeah, we, we should we should be rephrasing this in all likelihood. Yeah. So I'm gonna I'm gonna jump over number three in the interest of time in part, and number four is start with trust because there's a really an interesting. Uh, dilemma here for executives, I have to think, you know, their, their pay has really shot up uh, in the last 20, 30, 40 years. And yet you note that inequality and trust are correlated. So for a CEO who is being astronomically well paid vis-a-vis -vis the rank and file workers, 
any advice on how they're going to manage to create trust or regain trust or build trust when it almost might not be there by definition, given the amount of inequality in income? Yeah, well, you you have just waded into deep water. (laughs) (laughs) I I have a tendency to do that. Yeah, which is great. And I welcome it. And I love these kinds of discussions and debates. And, you know, what I love too, and I'll just I'll just uh, sort of add this as a side note. Um, one of my favorite things to ask about the book is um, to ask people like, which superpower kind of resonates with you immediately? Because everyone seems to have one where like, ooh, tell me more. That sounds interesting. And pretty much everybody has at least one that makes them uncomfortable where they go, ooh, wait a minute. I don't read that. doesn't sound like what I was taught. And that rubs me the wrong way. And, you know, for me, that's fabulous. When something makes you uncomfortable or it feels a little bit too provocative, um, that's a signal to learn more. That's also a signal where you may, and when I say you, I mean myself too, um, where any person may not have spent enough time thinking about what's really driving them as they relate to change. So the way that you frame this, because when we say start with trust, and you know, that at the core of that is that when when trust seems broken, assume good intent. When I say start with trust, I'm really looking at how we have designed so many of our systems, organizations, assumptions with the basic premise or default assumption, if you will, that the average person cannot be trusted. And in the process, what we do is we snip ourselves off from one another, that we're gradually kind of fraying the human relationships that keep us all together. And so in the book, we get into like, what does it mean to actually flip that script? And what would a world look like in which we design from the basic assumption that the average person, I'm not saying everybody, but the average person was trustworthy and the average person wanted to help others and look out for others and so forth. So that's kind of the the trust angle is really looking at that and the way you frame though the the inequality and astronomical pay and whatnot, also it, there is an element of trust, and I'll circle back to that in just a minute. There's also an element of another superpower, which is know you're enough. <laughs> and, exactly, these two fit together because yeah. in in that chapter you say we've entered the era in which profit sharing with company executives began, and that replaced the profit sharing that used to be involving workers. Yeah, exactly. And so know you're enough, and here we're getting sort of a, a double bonus, if you will, um, <laughs> right? But yep. um, the superpower know you're enough is really looking at our, candidly, our obsession with more. Um, that we, again, society has taught us not only is more better, but that you will never have enough. You always need more, more money, more power, more prestige, more likes, more loves, more followers, more, more everything, Right. And yet this obsession with more is mostly making us miserable. And I think a lot of people would acknowledge these days that simply having more does not necessarily make you happier. Um, it actually tends to lead to a lot of like, like a lot of racing on the hamster wheel and a lot of questioning, like, why am I racing like this? So I bring this up because back to the context of um, executive pay, we kind of need to be looking at this also from the perspective of we're in a situation in companies where you've got a you've got an executive or an executive team that's earning astronomical sums of money while at the same time, many of the people working in that company are struggling to make ends meet. You got to wonder, well, hold on here. What kind of a company is this in terms of values, in terms of like what makes you, you, even when everything else changes, 
this is a company that's actually founded on a kind of fundamental inequality. Now, I know I am not saying don't have incentive-based compensation. Lot incentives are a great thing to motivate people. But when we're at a point where the 23 wealthiest people on the planet have more financial wealth than the poorest 50% of the whole world, 4 billion plus people, something is grossly wrong. So if you're in a company where I say that's a signal of mistrust, if you want to trust your colleagues that they really actually have your best interests at heart, you want to make sure that everyone has enough as opposed to a few people having more. And if you can't look at this, the signal of, of mistrust, distrust comes from, I'm not actually sure if this person has, has my back. I'm not actually sure if, if things got really tough for me, could I ask this person for help? Maybe yes, maybe no. But this, the, the compensation discrepancy becomes a kind of symbol of an untrustworthy culture at that point. Now, I'm not saying that there's, there, you know, this is not black and white. There's always a spectrum in which some people are going to earn more than others. Fine. But when we find ourselves in the situation we are today, in which 23 people own more financial wealth than 4 billion plus people, there's a signal. What ends up happening is that's when resentment starts to build. And here I'm, I'm speaking almost like at a geopolitical level. That's when you start getting people who are ready to protest and say, enough is enough. We need societal change. We need system change. At the same time, any CEO today has some ability, some agency to change that level of inequality within his or her organization. And so there's a really you know, low-hanging fruit in terms of where we could start. Yeah, it just seems to me that CEO is going to have to show some vulnerability because economically they don't seem vulnerable to the rank and file. They're going to have to somehow be able to espouse values that one can relate to if one can't relate to the trappings of their lifestyle. Um, because, you know, if trust is indeed the emotion of business, um, yeah, you're not starting from a point of trust because everyone's going to know the CEO is doing fabulously well. As a as a boy, I remember in high school reading about the Gilded Age and thought, well, that's a relic of the past. And now I'm living in an era where Richard Branson and Jeff Bezos blast off into space um, along, along with all their monies. So um, I do I do admit chapters five and six are uh, those those uh, rules grab me a lot, but I also would say that number six uh, create your own portfolio attracted me in, in part because here, here we're talking about how many careers we're going to have and sometimes careers now they're at the same time in fact and the gig economy. But I'm really interested in what you have to say for the implications of education because you are after all a futurist. I grew up in a college town. Uh, Northfield, Minnesota, Carleton College, St. Olaf College. So everyone I knew was a professor. Maybe I didn't have teachers. Uh, my parents were not teachers. They were in the business world or in academia in one case. But, um, you know, wh where is education going to move to? Because it seems to me it is ripe for change. Absolutely. And um, it's fascinating because, I mean, just as, just as in the future of work, we have candidly, we have more ways to earn income than ever before. And I'm not saying that means more ways that everybody becomes rich and so on and so forth. I'm saying we, there are more ways to work and to create a livelihood and a life and earn income and care for your family and make all the pieces kind of fit together than ever before. Similarly, we have more ways to learn, to pursue your curiosity, to gain new skills, to get out there and sort of, um, you know, again, follow your curiosity 
than ever before as well. And obviously a lot of this is powered by the internet, new technologies and so forth. But it's fascinating because education, the future of education, or many would say the future of learning is a much better way to put it. Um, We are looking at a future of work and a future of learning in which you will never stop learning. So unlike the past where you would study hard, get good grades, go to a college, go to college if you can, get a job, do that job, like linear, study, work, retire. Each and every one of those nodes is sort of cracking and fissuring at this point. And when we think about the fact that, yes, the average person is going to have multiple careers, um, what I call a portfolio career, which is, um, so we can come back to that. It's imagine the portfolio that an artist curates or that an investor curates in which, and, and I put this in contrast to like the path. So rather than a singular career path that you pursue and A will lead to B, will lead to C and you know, climb the ladder and these are my goals and look out world. However, if that doesn't go to plan, you, you don't know what to do with yourself. Your professional identity gets really, really challenged. That, that singular career path to pursue is giving way to a much more portfolio-based approach in which you know an artist portfolio has the best works in it. An investor portfolio is designed to actually diversify and mitigate risk. So looking at all of the jobs you've ever had, all of the skills you've ever had, as going into your portfolio, even if some of them might not have shown up on your CV. So back to the learning piece, in this future of work that's in flux, in which many of us are going to have multiple careers, et cetera, et cetera, um, this notion that you'll never stop learning and layering and leveling up, um, there's there's probably a different debate for a different day as to, for example, is a four-year college degree going to be the credential of the future? Now, I would argue that a four-year college degree, it's not disappearing, but it's actually becoming only one of a much broader menu of options where people can prove their skills. And it's not just about where you went to school. More and more employers, partners, collaborators, et cetera, they just want to know what you can do. And if you can show them that you can do a given, um, you know, do a, a given activity or or produce a given output or outcome, that's it. We're good. And it doesn't matter necessarily that you got GPA XYZ or took courses ABC. So it's all, I mean, sorry, I'm using an over, overused term at this point, but like the future of learning is very much in flux too, but it opens up a whole bunch of opportunities that simply didn't exist before, certainly didn't exist at scale before. And that's reason to be excited if, again, if you're somebody who's willing and wants to continue to pursue your curiosity over your lifetime, because again, you this isn't something that you're going to somehow complete someday. It will continue so long as you're breathing. Sure. Well, I remember when I was going to Brown University, I was going for a, a master's degree, but I remember looking at the undergraduate catalog. Besides the fact that Brown, you you know, didn't bother about grades or even a major, if I recall correctly, they had all these delicious courses that were interdisciplinary, and that seems to me at least the the obvious short-term approach, because just to give you one example, they had a course on the Habsburg Empire. Mm-hmm. Well, normally you would have had something in the music department and the art department and the history department and so forth. Well, this course was being, you know, not just team taught with two professors. I believe there was three, possibly even four who were involved in the course. And I, my, I wasn't an undergrad, so I wasn't eligible, but my mouth watered at the thought mm-hmm. that you would bring all of these together. Yeah. So it's been fascinating. I want to appreciate and thank you so much for uh, being with me today. My guest has been April Reine, 
This is episode number 80 of Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. She is the author of Flux, Eight Superpowers for Thriving in Constant Change. If you enjoyed today's show, please give it a rating or review on iTunes. You can find other episodes by going to my company's website, the obligatory three W's and sensorylogic.com, or go to the New Books Network, type in Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, and up will pop the other episodes and guests that I've had. Finally, I'd like to conclude every episode with an epigram. In this case, I'm drawing on the legendary congresswoman from Texas, Barbara Jordan, who said, for all of its uncertainty, we cannot flee the future. Until next time, be kind and take care.